Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. In recent years, we've seen powerful tech companies issuing their own money, monitoring our conversations, and putting networks of satellites into space. Many people are uncomfortable with the idea that corporations may already be much more powerful than nation states. But this debate is not new, says Professor Philip Stern, my guest on this episode of the podcast. Stern, who is the author of a new book called Empire Incorporated, says corporations drove the Western colonial expansion that started in the 16th century. So we need to rethink the supposedly firm distinction between private enterprise and the state, says Stern. Instead, we need to view history as much through the lens of corporate power as through the decision-making of kings, queens and parliaments. Philip, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself, your area of work and your new book? Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I'm a professor at, at uh, Duke University. I teach uh, in the history department. Uh, and my work generally focuses on uh, the history of the British Empire uh, and of European empires. Uh, a lot of my work is in the past focused on the history of British India, but in my new book, uh, Empire Incorporated, uh, I kind of broaden that out to look at the relationship between different parts of uh, the British Empire across the world and across um, across periods from the 16th to the 20th centuries. Um, and this new book looks at the role in particular of uh, private enterprise and corporations, joint stock corporations in particular, in, and the role and how they shaped, um, uh, shaped the British Empire across that period. Yeah. So why was the corporation so well suited to colonial expansion? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, so I think there are a couple of answers I give in the book. I focus on a, on, a, on a, just a, a one or two here. Uh, one of which, uh, and I think it's the one that most people will often give you on this, is that the 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 joint stock corporation, in particular, a corporation based in shareholding, was able to uh, uh, raise capital in much greater quantities than, say, a simple partnership or or an, a particular individual, and even to some extent, you know, even some of the most the wealthiest individuals, uh, including uh, the the king or queen themselves, uh, couldn't raise the kind of capital you could raise by going around and taking money from anybody who was uh, sort of involved in a, anything from a landlord to other kinds of colonial trades. One of the arguments uh, and sort of things I look at in the book is not just the financial advantages of something like the uh, of the joint stock corporation, but the political and legal advantages that the uh, corporation presented. And one of which uh, is uh, its ability to uh, hold on to things that we think of as political rights, even sovereignty, and make them into private property in a certain way. And one of the other things to think about about the corporation in particular is how, as a legal structure, it, it go it, it it is in some sense already an inherently uh, political form and form of governance, going back to medieval churches and cities and all of these other forms of corporations that we uh, that 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 uh, that we know of. So when we tend to think about corporations as primarily commercial bodies. Uh, I like what I'm looking at is the ways in which we understand them also um, kind of as legal uh, entities and forms of government. And the last so the only corporation, is, uh, sorry, Philip, carry on. Oh, I was just going to say the other, the other thing I'm saying, I think of something that uh, listeners to this podcast may be very interested in is the, the joint stock corporation's great capacity to go into debt, um, okay. which is another element that I think is, is, is what allows it to, to sort of uh, expand with capital it doesn't really have. Yeah, I was one thing that struck me when reading your book was that I, I was broadly familiar with the story of the East India Company, and I've read William Dalrymple's book on 
on that subject. And I was familiar with the, the Russia company of the 16th century and the, and the Levant company. But your book made it really stand out to me that, that uh, there were so many of these early corporations launched in around that time, you know, m- many actually decades before the ones I've just named. What was the reason for that explosion of interest? Was it that, uh, was it the, those constraints, you know, the, maybe on borrowing by the, the, the monarch, or was it something to do with the age of exploration, seafaring, advances in technology, or, or a combination of all those things? Yeah, I think the answer to that question is yes. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I think I think I think it's a it's a it's a confluence of a, a lot of circumstances in the 16th and 17th centuries uh, that leads to this kind of uh, explosion in what you might think of as speculation and empire. Uh, with uh, in in the case of the British Empire, in particular, in the 16th century. Uh, we have to think about. I mean, I wrote this book. This book is about the British Empire, but we should not forget that it is taking place in an environment of kind of European competition and expansion around the globe, and so particularly rivalries with the Portuguese, the Spanish, Dutch enterprises, all of whom are experimenting with different forms. Eventually, the French as well, different forms of these kinds of corporate uh, and, co- and and company based colonial enterprises. Uh, the the uh, I think this this is also part of what leads to this uh, sort of vast experimentation and explosion. I also think that, um, and we'll be familiar with this today, that to some extent, uh, uh, the success or apparent success or popularity of one venture leads to many imitators, uh, rivals. So the Russia company you mentioned before, which is often mentioned as sort of the first joint stock colonial corporation, um, and we could talk about that if you wanted to. Uh, um, uh, you know, its claim on essentially initial claim, which was not on Russia at all, but actually, or on, on, on diplomacy of Russia, but actually was a company created in 1553 with the idea of finding essentially a passage to India. Uh, that inspired uh, a lot of people to nip at its heels. And over the course of 50 years leads to colonization in America, companies for Levant and for India and whatnot, including the East India Company that you mentioned. The, the Russia Company really caught my attention because in addition to that, I, I understood from reading a book that they, when they when the, they got to Moscow to, to try and trade with the Tsar of Russia, who was Ivan the Terrible, I believe, they ended up going on to Persia and with, you know, with a kind of investment from Ivan to, 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 to have, I guess, in a kind of joint venture. So they're... The geographical labels we give to these companies are quite fluid, weren't they? That's amazing. Um, you know, one of the main themes of this book, and I think I mentioned this before in a different in a different context, is that even though talking about the British colonialism, by looking at the way co- this is done by companies and other kinds of non-state enterprises, you start to really have to question your idea of national categories. So the Russia company, in many respects, was dependent on... Uh, charters from the English crown, uh, as well as grants and charters from the Russian czar, and undertakes a number of enterprises on behalf of both of them, uh, as in many respects a conduit between the two. Uh, To your earlier question, then interestingly enough, uh, uh, about 50, 60 years later, when the Virginia Company comes along uh, with plans to colonize in North America, one of the things they're looking for is another route to the East Indies, to to the Pacific Ocean, and to Asia. And they, um, uh, there are some people in that early company in the 1600s that imagine there's a, a network of rivers through North America that they can get to the Indies with, 
Um, and the reason they think that is because the Russia company thinks that about Eurasia. So again, you see this kind of um, uh, uh, iterative and emulative effect, right? Yeah, and, and a kind of explosion of speculation and imagination amongst those uh, putting money into these ventures. And experience, right? So, so you, a lot of cross-pollination of, 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 of uh, uh, leadership. Um, you talk about the Russia company, the, there was one person, uh, a guy by the name of Thomas Smith, who uh, uh, in, the late 17th, in the late 16th and early 17th century had been governor of uh, uh, or, or highly or, or involved at the highest levels of the Russia company, the Levant company, the East India company, the Virginia company. You also have employees, you have um, uh, uh, settlers, people who have, are connected to a bunch of different ventures. Uh, the term I use in the book to think about, well, again, back to your question about, you know, why are companies so effective, as I, I call it in the book, portfolio colonialism, that you don't, that the idea of investing in colonialism means you can have a small piece of all of these different enterprises and be involved at the same time. That's not just a financial aspect, that's a political and social and cultural investment in uh, the dispossession of territory, in the exploitation of commerce, in what becomes, we come to think of as empire. You mentioned earlier the competition between different European powers in the 16th and 17th century. Was there anything particularly distinct about the way the English did it as opposed to, let's say, the Dutch or the Spanish or the Portuguese? Uh, yeah, so that's, a, that's a tough question. Um, probably take up the rest of the podcast to, <laughs> to, 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 to talk about. Um, you know, I think there were ways in which um, some of the examples – are are distinct that I give, but I wouldn't want to call it a particularly British way of doing things. And I, I would, I guess, I would say um, uh, the 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 most straightforward answer to your question is that there's a lot of borrowing and cross pollination. Uh, so uh, there are a number of British uh, ventures, and again, uh, it's you know to call them British, uh, you know they're. They, they might have English charters. Uh, even, keep in mind, Britain itself doesn't exist until the early 18th century, but they borrow from Dutch models. They borrow from French models. Scott, Scottish models make their way to France. Uh, in later, we think of the Spanish and Portuguese as not necessarily tending towards this corporate model, but there's many examples of borrowing of British models in Spain and Portugal in the 17th and 18th centuries. So, uh, so I, I guess the short answer is that I, I, I wouldn't want to say that right. there's something distinctly British about this. Okay. Um, now, in, in some historians, um, maybe a simplified version of history, um, corporations do the dirty work of countries and, and colonize them in exchange for a, getting a, a monopoly on trading to that part of the world. Uh, do you agree with that or do you take issue with that, that way of looking at things? I mean, I, there are certainly instances where that could be said, but I take issue with that kind of blanket way of thinking about this. I guess it's a question of, you know, uh, what's the dog and what's the tail, as they say, right? Because uh, there are many instances where I think what you have is uh, our states being enlisted, if you will, to do the dirty work of the corporations, if you want to put it that way. Um, I also think that you have to understand the fact that the the I mean what what one of the ideas behind this book and behind the work that I do on this is to is to um, open our minds up to how we think that s states are the entities that primarily drive empires and drive politics, and to look at uh, you know across time, including to today, how actually politics and governance are located in lots of different places and the state is just one historical 
um, outcome and uh, of that. Uh, but it's important to know that in a number of different ways, um, uh, uh, in, at different moments, you see companies working in alliance with the state. At different times, you see the state actually creating corporations, state-owned corporations, if you will, in various ways. Um, sometimes you see the companies in complete opposition to the state. Uh, and sometimes you see them working in tandem, you know, in some kind of uneasy alliance uh, with each other. So uh, so I'm not comfortable with that one-size-fits-all way of talking about things, right? right? But is it fair to say that, I mean, speaking roughly, a queen or a king like maybe Elizabeth I of England would give a charter to a particular ship or group of ships or group of adventurers and get a kind of hedge fund fee uh, in, re in return for giving a charter or an exclusive right to trade with a particular part of the world. And it was a, it was a way of making money for, for both groups, or both the monarch and the, and the adventurers. I mean, I think that's that I think I think that's that's certainly true. I also think it's a way of also um, it's not just a financial benefit. The charters, in many respects, can also be political benefits. Could be favors given out uh, to for loyalty, for um, uh, for support of the crown. Uh, but uh, you know, one of the things I sort of one of the things that I got most fascinated with in writing this book, uh, something in some sense I didn't realize it was as pro. When I started this book, I didn't realize what it, uh, how the story would proliferate in the way that it did. Uh, was just how often. You know the Queen, Queen, some of the Queen Elizabeth, or 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 or, or uh, Charles the First, or Charles the Second, the seventeenth century into the uh, uh, the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries, would give out exclusive monopoly charters to multiple entities at the same time that overlapped and conflicted with each other. So right. we make a mistake if we think about this as a as a kind of straightforward system, um, especially in moments of crisis, say uh, in the lead up to the English Civil Wars, for example, the War of the Three Kingdoms, historians sometimes call it, um, you see charters used as a way of, of, of creating political alliances. So it's it's not really that straightforward, but there is a lot of mutual benefit at various points. I totally take your point on that. I just think you also find times where you see a long history of the crown trying to take these charters back and not being able to do it. The best example of that, most famous one, is with uh, the Massachusetts Bay Company, where the Crown actually attempts to take back the charter in the 1630s and can't actually do it because they've taken the charter and their government across the ocean. Right. And, and a lot of the, the, the first U.S. states were set up as uh, com chartered companies. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, not just as chartered companies. I mean, some are. The, uh, New England in particular, uh, what's now Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, are filled with a number of uh, either corporations or joint stock companies, and there are technical differences over time uh, uh, between those two categories. Uh, and then eventually, colonies like Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut are themselves corporations. The governor and company um, of the colony of Connecticut is you know, an official name. But then there's also other forms of col of American colonies, uh, say Pennsylvania, which is led by William Penn, uh, which is a proprietorship based upon a seigneurial lordship model is essentially a fiefdom over this territory of Pennsylvania. But one of the things I, I talk about in the book is just how much his ability to sort of distribute property and to sort of convert indigenous property and uh, other forms of territory and, and possession in some of Pennsylvania relied on his chartering as a sort of seigneurial lord of other joint stock corporations. So even the other models that aren't corporate, um, have some model of uh, at least joint stock company, if not corporation, underneath them. If that makes right. sense. 
so there's a lot of experimentation with legal forms and and uh, corporate structures from the earliest moment. Yeah, and one of the you know one of the, the the points of this book is you know I call it a kind of intellectual biography of a of of an institution over time, and one of the the points about that is that, that there's a genealogy here, and in, like all genealogy, you get it's not as if anything stays the same. You in fact get recombinations, you get marriages of different ideas, you get some weird cousin idea that you know that that comes in, and it and so so the corporation by the nineteenth and twentieth century doesn't look the same as it does in the 17th century, but it's got a kind of family resemblance or a genetic connection because of a lot of different experimentation. Uh, mind you, uh, one of the other points of writing this book was to sort of move away from triumphalist narratives that um, uh, you, know, you, you often get with some of these larger companies that we later know turn out to be larger territorial empires, but all of them start rather tenuous, rather in debt, and many, many, many ideas fail miserably. And that's to go back to your earlier question, uh, maybe another way in which the joint stock corporation, the joint stock company model uh, helps to further colonial ambitions was because of its various capacities, it allows for this kind of um, uh, experimentation and really some uh, off the wall ideas. Um, and if they fail, uh, they fail, but cumulatively, uh, it produces this phenomenon. Could you talk a bit about the history of the East India Company? Because that, uh, uh, again, struck me in your book, how much debate there was throughout British history about the nature of that company and how controversial it was, how it, how the, the East India Company raised big questions amongst the commentators and historians and politicians about joint stock companies as a, as a whole, whether they were the right thing to, 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 to have. Adam Smith was very critical of joint stock companies. Um, there was this big debate in the 18th century about, about the... Or the Hastings trial about the East India Company and whether it had abused its privileges. Um, um, could you talk a bit about how that went from being one of the early early companies to eventually ending up as having its assets national? Well, I suppose nationalised is the right word. That became the British Empire in the nineteenth century. Yeah, it's a great example, and you know, uh, you, you you struck at something that that sort of at the heart of my work. I, I wrote a previous book called The Company State, which is really about the 17th and early 18th century origins of, of the East India Company's empire in British British India. Um, and so, uh, you know, one of the points in this book is that the East India Company starts in that moment we were talking about before of all of these different um, attempts to reach Asia through maritime and territorial routes in the uh, in the 16th century. And it's, it's first um, chartered in 1600, uh, though you can trace its roots for several decades back before that. Um, what I wrote about in the earlier book, and, and it's echoed in this book to some extent, I haven't really changed my mind about that, is that in in the 17th and early 18th centuries, uh, we've uh, historians have long tr sort of imagined the company to have been a kind of just basically a trading merchant, where right? we think of it as trading to textiles that eventually tea it's most famous with, and maybe famous for. Um, but one of my arguments in that earlier book was that uh, by the nature of being a kind of European commercial body in Asia and by being a corporation, for some of the reasons I mentioned before, it um, it actually had to, it engaged in what we might think of as governance. Uh, uh, you know, it had what it called colonies in places like Madras, present-day Chennai, or, or Bombay, present-day Mumbai. Um, it, you know, in those, in those uh, places in the 17th century, even though they were port towns and some of small nodal territories on the edge of very large empires like the Mughal Empire, 
they did things like make laws and had courts and made their own coin uh, and flew their own flags and things like that. Um, that leads um, both uh, in terms of its rights, the, the, the sort of rights it has from the Brit- from, from the English and then later British state, and then also from places like the Mughal Empire, it leads in a variety of ways um, to increasing claims that by the middle of the 18th century transformed from these smaller coastal sites to larger territorial empire that uh, talked about in something like William Dalrymple's book, who you mentioned before. And so from the middle of the 18th century onto the middle of the 19th century, the East India Company essentially is the government of the what you might think of as the British Empire in India. Uh, I'll just say, say that you, one of the, the two things about that history that uh, I might highlight, and I talk a lot more about a lot of other things in the book about this, um, one is that the the what's really quite interesting is that from the moment of that acquisition of large territorial power in the mid 18th century, maybe even before that, the East India Company is extremely controversial. It causes these crises, like the attempt to sort of rein the company in through the prosecution of Warren Hastings, a series of parliamentary legislation that attempts to regulate the company in some ways. But what's really quite fascinating about this is that despite those controversies, two things happen. One is there continues to be a large group of people, including the company itself, other kinds of advocates for it, uh, who continue to argue that it is a better way of doing empire than the British state. One of the most famous advocates for the company is John Stuart Mill, the philosopher, who also happened to be an administrative uh, employee of the East India Company for a while. Uh, so uh, you, you, you continue to have, even as you have these critiques from people like Adam Smith, who many people will be surprised to learn was a great um, uh, opponent of the idea of the joint stock uh, company and the corporation uh, for a variety of reasons, which we could talk about if you want. Um, uh, and it, the East India Company being the worst example of that, he said, because it was mixed, you know, being a merchant with a sovereign. There's still many people who continue to say things like, um, you know, companies do empire better than states. And these, and, and India is uh, one of those places. Uh the this this argument goes through until even through the period you were mentioning where the East India Company um, has its uh, rights of government taken away from it uh, in 1858 after the Indian Rebellion of 1857 and 1858. Uh, so that's one really interesting thing. Uh, by that point in 1858, incidentally, uh, you know the East India Company for 20 years hadn't traded in anything. It had exclusively been a company just for government. So when the controversies over the, over being a, a, a company and a state at the same time flared up in the early 19th century, the solution turned out to be not to take away its rights of government, but to take away its rights of commerce, which is also very interesting. And the last thing I say, I, I, I know I've, I've got on about this for too long, but you you you, you open the floodgates when you ask me about the East India Company. Um, the last thing I'll say that I trace in the book that I have to say really blew my mind as I was writing this. I I, I knew this. Um, when I went into writing it in some sense, and I, um, uh, I didn't realize how pervasive it was, which is that even after the East India Company is removed from being the government of India in eight, of British India in 1858, and we get with the so-called Crown Raj, it lives on maybe even more strongly in its reputation as a model for future colonial ventures, particularly in the, uh, the, the so-called scramble for Africa in the 1880s and 1890s. So even after this period where we think tend to say historically, think, okay, well, this is the era of company colonialism over. That was an early modern thing. That was a 
ancien regime sort of thing. It lasted in the middle of the 19th century. We got rid of it. Now states do empire. The colonization of Africa in particular, but other places like North Borneo and, 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 and um, elsewhere around the world continued to be company colonies in the late 19th century. Not only that, they continued to, to argue for that by citing the East India Company and other companies like the Hudson's Bay Company as positive models. And to me, that's right. really quite striking. Yeah, and and all these things you've been talking about are still, you know, highly relevant in today's world, aren't they? I, I notice, maybe it's the people I'm following on Twitter, but I, I notice from a, a number of you know, Indian commentators, people that they they they're bringing up reference to this references to this time very regularly. I noticed the Russian ambassador in London talking about Britain's exploits in India today, and on an interview with Sky News. I mean, these things are not these topics are not going away, are they? And in some ways, they're coming back to public consciousness in in a way that probably we haven't seen for a while. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think in India in particular, uh, you, but, I, but it's not really exclusive to India. Uh, you often see uh, the, the East India Company cited as a way of interpreting a variety, the infiltration of a variety of, of, of influences, both uh, state and, 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 and company. Uh, so you often see a lot of like, this is the new East India Company. Um, uh, and I think what that stands in for, you know, sometimes it's a, it's it, sometimes those analogies are uh, are more extensive than others. But I think what it stands in for is the understanding that what the East India Company did was sort of infiltrate, uh, 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 sort of uh, as a colonial entity, but also with these uh, kinds of commercial ambitions at the same time. So trying to understand what it means to be to have a kind of commercial dominance of a global multi national that also is very much connected to politics and um uh and and to forms of of governance even if some of these newer companies that get compared i've seen amazon compared for example i've seen facebook compared uh to the east india company even if they're not taking territorial power it's a way of trying to grapple with exactly what is the nature of the power of these companies in particular in this in in the in in this in, in, in this environment where we think of as as states as being kind of coherent. In some yeah, way. and you call this venture colonialism in your in your book. So that hasn't gone away. It's still still there. Whether it's tech companies, and you know, in the on the on the internet, monopolizing the internet, or putting satellites into space, or even even private armies haven't gone away. Have they? We've got Wagner Group all over Africa. We had Blackwater in Iraq. These things are still very topical, aren't they? Absolutely, and again, I think I think you know when you uh, go back to the point I made before, where I mean, one of the one of the things I'd like people to take from this book is not to think about the this history as analogy and more of it as genealogy, right? So I think that a lot of the examples you cited are different than the East India Company, right? As a historian, I have to say that, right? The context matters, right? Um, but I do think they're connected. I mean, there are many companies today who are literally connected to this history who in their dna uh some of these companies i talk about are 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 are, are still there some of these same companies still exist actually um I, uh, but uh but i do think the history that i talk about in this book helps us to think about what it means to have private military contractors some of whom i have seen compare themselves to the east india company as well um or what it means 
uh, to have, say, uh, a, re- a, a natural resource extraction company, companies like oil companies or mining companies that run local towns, or even, you know, uh, you know, we uh, here in the U.S. we've we've been following uh, the um, a kind of controversy in Florida between the governor of Florida and the Walt Disney Corporation over Disney's more or less self-governing status in in Florida. It is not the same thing as the venture colonialism I'm talking about, right? It's a very, very different model, but it does help us to ask the questions about what what we think about the boundaries between public and private. Uh, something like when Facebook announces having its own currency or having its own Supreme Court, as they called it, you know, um, when um, when SpaceX makes plans for colonizing Mars, it helps us to sort of process what's going on there. Even if I, I would resist um, a one-to-one analogy with yeah. what's with with this history of colonialism um uh, especially since uh you know the the, the world's a much different place and these economies are very different places because uh, information uh, uh uh economy uh operates in a somewhat different way than some of these uh the the, the kinds of um uh, companies I'm talking about in the book, but but nonetheless, in a case by case basis, I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So so that 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 debate over the dividing line between public and private, whether it's from a governance perspective or the question of of, of power, political power, economic power, that's still just as it, as actual as it was in the 16th or 17th centuries. I mean, yeah, I, you know, just as I don't, I don't, you know, I I, I guess what I would say is that um, that the it's hard to make a measure like that, but I do think that that our our general intuitive conception that there was a world back in the 16th and 17th centuries where there were all of the you know we had mercenaries, for example. Well, we still kind of have mercenaries, right? It it looks different. I, I mean, I, I don't think you can really say private military contractors today, and I'm no expert so I, I, uh, on this topic, are the same as. Uh, as as say uh, you know, sixteenth or seventeenth seventeenth century mercenaries, but the phenomenon has evolved. Uh, uh, you you have companies, multinationals, in the same way that I talk about in my book, that may we may think of as say American or British companies, but when you look at it, investors are global. Their operations are global. They they domicile themselves in more tax friendly countries you know so when apple you know makes itself into an irish company exactly how do we um think about that uh, again not the area that i'm particularly expert in but i do think the kinds of questions i'm raising help us to sort of bust out the categories and that i don't think has changed even with the rise of the modern state in the 19th and 20th centuries which is i think maybe uh thrown a kind of uh, a, a cloud or um uh, sort of made us sort of start to think about uh, though uh, I should say that you know we tend to think of the global order today as one made up primarily of national states. Yeah. You know, only nations sit at the United Nations, for example. But we all know, if you look at the modern world, that there's lots of different forms of political power and lots of centers for that political power, especially in places where states are weaker. Uh, one final question. It's not a small one, I'm afraid, but uh, uh, you got me thinking through the podcast about the, the shift in economic power and political power from, let's say, the US or the US and Europe towards Asia and in particular China. Do you think that 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 shift, that ongoing shift in power is going to, does the topic of your book still have relevance or or will the Chinese be doing things in a a very different way? 
Yeah. The, I, I, I think, again, what I would answer to that from the perspective of my book and the stuff that I know about um, is that I think that even as you talk about these shifts from one center of national power to another center of national power, um, it, you have to also understand the conduits through which that power works and the conduits that push back against that power, right? So again, I, I'm really uh, out of my lane in sort of thinking about the way that uh, I know as much as most people do just by following the news and thinking about it in relation to the kinds of stuff I, I study for a living. Um, but uh, right when, like, think about when, uh, when, when uh, I guess one example that you think about in the United States, um, uh, there's a lot of political controversy, for example, over TikTok and its data collecting processes. This is a, you know, you, you, you think about the relationship between corporations and states. I don't know much about that. I'm not going to say, I don't know how to analyze it for you, but I do know that it's not just about the story of gov- of state governments. It's about companies and companies that in to varying degrees are connected to states or not connected to states um, and their ambitions and maybe move back and forth between those two modes. Uh, and that's, that's what I guess um, I would like people to take from this book. You know, the, the analogy I use in the, in the introduction to the book uh, is to think about, um, you know, the, this kind of approach is like a, 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 a like a play or a, or, or a novel that takes what we tend to think of as a supporting character and puts it at the center of the story, you know, like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern or, 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 or Wicked, you know, you take a, um, uh, and, and then see what the story looks like. It doesn't get rid of that previous story. It doesn't make that not a valid story, the story of, of states and, and their power, but it does give you a different perspective on thinking about how those mechanics work when you, when you, don't assume that corporations are the supporting characters or the um, the the conduits of that power, as you asked about before, but perhaps maybe determine those outcomes uh, at yeah. the same time. So, um, but I'll have to leave um, the question of the shifting balance of power between the United States and China to a different guest because that's something I'm not hundred not not very not on very solid ground saying much about directly. Yeah. Yeah. Phil, thank you very much for taking the time to chat to me. It's been a fascinating discussion and I really enjoyed your book, Empire Incorporated, that came out from Harvard University Press last month. Well, thank you for so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to this New Money Review podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it or share it on your podcast listening platform. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so using Patreon. Details of how to do so are on the right margin of our website, newmoneyreview.com. Listen in soon for our next episode.